Today's scripture reading is it comes from Matthew uh, chapter twenty-two, fifteen to forty-six. That's Matthew chapter twenty-two, fifteen to forty-six. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, uh, you should be able to find one of the in the chair uh, underneath the chair in front of you, and you can turn it to page seven seven seven. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, share the Word of God with you. Just want to remind you once again, if you're a part of a smaller group, we have a larger group meeting today with your various elders, so please join them. And if you are not sure or you want to join one, then speak with any of the elders or myself, and we'll help you get plugged in to a larger group so that you can meet today, go over today's passage, pray together, and hopefully be encouraged. Uh, Before we start today's message, let's pray. Let your gospel, O Lord, come to us, not in word only, but in power, and in much assurance 
and in the Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience and enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I just want to remind you that as we go through these passages now, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of Jesus' life. Okay, think about that. Jesus knew this too. If you only had one week to live, and then, you know, the thought experiment goes on, and then you can ask yourself that too. If you only had one week to live, what would you do, right? If you only had one week to live, what would you do? Let's see. Jesus has one week to live, and what does he do, though? That's more important, right? Not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? Jesus has one week to live. What does Jesus do? He pronounces judgment, for one. You may think, oh, you know, Jesus is like about love, and you got to talk about love. And you see, the, the main text of 22 and 23, this conversation that he has, the teachings that he has, is the pronunciation of judgment. And to many of us, especially those that grew up in the church, this can be a little bit concerning, disconcerting. Um, maybe we don't understand. I saw this TV show recently, and it, it was a sitcom. And the whole episode was about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And dad was upset it's like a family sitcom. The dad was upset, and he was like, I want the God of the Old Testament, you know, like brimstone and fire. And then, and then the daughter would go up to the dad trying to kind of calm him down to show him that he should forgive. And the daughter gently whispers into the dad's ear, well, that's not my God. That's not my God, though, right? I want the God of judgment, especially on the people that I hate, and, you know, Obviously, this is alluding to if you believe in the New Testament God, then God, New Testament God is a God of forgiveness. He's a nice guy, right? And is that what we have been reading the whole time in the last week of Jesus? And I was thinking about it. There's a pronunciation of judgment. It does not stop from last week. It continues on and even goes on further into chapter 23. And you may be hearing this you may have had a little experience with the church, and maybe you came here, you just don't like it. Stop preaching on judgment. Preach on mercy. Preach on grace. So don't, let's not do these passages, right? And I, I've been thinking about that uh, for quite some time. There is a difference, though, that I think we can easily miss. What's the difference? The difference is between judgment and the pronunciation of judgment. There are two different things. Judgment and the pronunciation of judgment. Why does the God of the Old Testament and the same God in the New Testament, namely Jesus Christ, continue to pronounce judgment? They're not two different gods. The God in Isaiah is not different from Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ 
giving that whole parable with the vineyard is exactly like we went over last week, exactly like Isaiah chapter 5. So it's not, they're not different, but that's the question. How do we take the pronunciation of judgment? When judgment is pronounced, meaning judgment is like told to people, how do we take it? Do we say, that's not my God? That's someone else's God. My God is blah. But do we actually see that in Jesus Christ? Is that what he's saying? Or does he pronounce the exact same judgments that are being pronounced in Isaiah and the other Old Testaments that his words are also pronunciations of judgment? But that's the question, is how do we take it? I actually see the pronunciation of judgment as an incredible, the more I read the Bible, the more we meditate on this, shouldn't we all also see this? The pronunciation of judgment is the most incredible grace that we can be given. It's not judgment. It's the pronunciation of judgment, saying if you continue in this way, there will be consequences. There will be judgment. If you continue down this path, judgment is inevitable. That's the pronunciation of judgment. So then you start to think, why does God have to do that at all? If we sin against God, if someone sins against you, you're not God, but let's say you're in a position of power and authority. If someone sins against you, why would you go, you continue to sin against me? Or you can, let's say, let's make, be specific. I guess sin can be a little abstract in our day and age. But let's say someone stabs you in the stomach. Uh, and it's like, if you continue to stab me in the stomach, I will retaliate. Why would you do that? If someone stabs you in the stomach, you take the knife out and you stab him right back, right? Or something to that effect. You give justice back to that person. Why would you have to say it? Isn't saying, if you continue to act in this manner, isn't saying it an incredible act of mercy? pronunciation of judgment or a warning that's given, why is that even necessary unless, unless it's to give space for repentance? Please stop doing what you're doing. Stop doing the sins that you are doing because judgment is nigh. It's right around the corner. Sin wants to devour you. Don't let sin do that. Doesn't God even warn Cain? Sin is crouching at the door. Don't give in. Why does he have to do that? Why can't he just whack him right there? You think you're going to whack somebody? Whack, and you whack him back. There is a difference between the pronunciation of judgment and the judgment itself. And I see the pronunciation of judgment now as an incredible grace and mercy that is undeserved, that we receive. I didn't say that last week because a lot of times we just have to sit in it. You know, We just have to sit in it. If there's a pronunciation of judgment, then sit in it. You, it's not a sitcom. Life isn't a sitcom. You don't need to be alleviated of any kind of angst when you see the pronunciation of judgment right then and there. A 30-minute sermon, give me the quick answer. Give me, as people would say, give me the gospel message. Give me the good news so I can go home okay. No, not if you're still in sin. 
the pronunciation of judgment still stands over your life until you repent and come back to Jesus Christ. That's what's important. So, here's the question. How do you take the pronunciation of judgment? How do you take it when judgment is pronounced on you? Do you take it with rage? Do you take it with rage? Or do you take it with contrition? Do you take it with a contrite heart? Like, oh my God, I do deserve this judgment. Do you take it defiant? Who do you think you are? Or do you take it repentant? So now we'll see how the Pharisees respond. In verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, So, pagideuo is the word ensnared that's been translated as to entangled. It's the only time used in the New Testament. And that basically means to get them. Okay? We're going to get them like that. And so they plotted how to just get them. And the, the interesting part about this is the Pharisees went with a group called the Herodians. Herodians, just like their namesake, weren't only, they, they were supporters of the family reign of Herod, but that wasn't the only thing about them. They were pro-Roman sympathizers, pro-Roman sympathizers, okay? These are the Herodians. The Pharisees are clearly not sympathetic to Roman occupation. They hate Roman occupation. They think only the law of God applies to them, and Roman occupation was in direct, stark contrast to their understanding of the law. The Herodians weren't even religious, like the Sadducees that we read later. The Herodians were strictly a political party. But politically speaking, the Herodians were on clear opposite spectrums or sides with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are on this side, then the Herodians are that complete opposite side. But what in the world would bring them together? A common enemy. As we may have heard before this idiom, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. Their hatred for Jesus Christ means they will join hands. How could you join hands with a political enemy? Find a bigger enemy to hate. And this is how they start off. They start off with flattery. And ironically, the flattery they give Jesus is actually all true. They're all true. And so they go, teacher which is a very high honorific term, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Remember, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were too afraid of the people, right? But here it is. They, he doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He's like, you don't care about anyone's opinion when they themselves were very afraid of the people. The people held him in esteem and considered Jesus to be a prophet. So that flattery is something they give him, but it's something I believe they wish they could be or they thought they were, but they never will be because the Pharisees and the Herodians, it's not true for them. 
they do not teach the way of God truthfully. And they really do care about what people think. This is ironic because they're giving Jesus all this flattery which they are not, which they think they are, they appear to be, but it's all true about Jesus. They don't teach the way of God. They, don't, they actually care about what other people think. And appearances, forget about it. They are the ones that would dress in long flowing robes and strut around the marketplace. Jesus would even say in Luke chapter 20, beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. However, Jesus gives this warning about them. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They would take the most fragile, the most um, weak of society, and they would devour them. They would abuse them. This is the kind of people these people were that were approaching Jesus with this flattery. And, Jesus, and they continue. This is now, now after the whole flattery, this is what they ask him. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There is this long preamble of flattery and they finally come to the question. And the wording of the question or not is a question demanding a simple answer. Yes or no, Jesus? Have you seen like court movies and stuff like that? Just answer yes or no. Yes or no, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no. Where does this all come from? And the word for tax is kainsas. Kainsas is actually a poll tax. Poll taxes people knew about because this is what a poll tax was. I mean, we know about poll tax in American history because they would put a poll tax before you vote in the 1890s, right, in the United States, and it was so that people of lower socioeconomic statuses wouldn't be able to vote, which primarily took care of the African-American population, so they couldn't vote. So there's this poll tax. Poll taxes are not a good thing. In 6 AD, Judas, not, not the Judas that we know of, but Judas of Galilee, he would lead a revolt against the Romans because the Romans would take a census for tax purposes. It's like, oh, we're going to take a census, but it was really just to tax them. So zealots would claim that this poll tax was dishonoring to God, and it was actually a way of branding people as slaves. You give us this poll tax, you're actually branding us as slaves. So they would be so upset that the Romans would be doing this, Judas of Galilee would lead a revolt. Uh, Josephus uh, writes this in his historical account. In 6 AD, then the Romans would respond by taking military action against this rebel group to quash any kind of uprising. So if you didn't pay your poll tax, the Romans would kill you, okay? Because they would take this as a rebellion. So that's the question. Do you think it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is a leading question for reductionistic answer, yes or no, simple yes or no, Jesus. But it's really asking this. You can either pay the taxes 
and have the people see you as a sellout because the taxes were evil. Poll taxes are terrible. They're a form of oppression. They brand you as a slave. Poll taxes are not good. So the people will see you as a sellout. Or if you say, don't pay the taxes, we'll get the Romans and they'll kill you, just like they did Judas of Galilee. But Jesus, aware of their malice, he says, why put me to the test you hypocrites. Jesus sees right through the deception and is aware of their perversion, their depravity, and calls them hypocrites or hypocrites or hypocrites, which is just uh, actors. They're, they're fakers. They're posers. Uh, he will be pushed into answering them on their terms, and he calls them hypocrites. He like answer these, this question on my terms, yes or no, but. Is he being pushed into answering on their terms? We'll see. Because in verse 19, he goes, show me the coin for a tax. Show me the coin for the tax. I find this very interesting because do you think Jesus did not have a denarius? And I think maybe not. Actually, maybe he didn't have a denarius. People didn't like Roman coinage back in the day. They didn't like Roman coinage because it had a symbol of Caesar on it. They didn't like Caesar. They just didn't carry it around. We talked about how when we went to the temple, there was money changers too. So you didn't even have to carry. If you found Roman coinage or someone gave it to you, you could change it at the temple too. So I don't think he had it. Uh, but they brought him a denarius. So show me the coin for a tax and they bring him a denarius. And Jesus says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say Caesar's. So when he asks for a denarius, uh, they bring him a coin or this coin that's called a denarius, but this coin bears the image of Caesar, specifically Caesar at the time. Caesar at the time was Tiberius Caesar. And so there was an image right there on that coinage. So the Jews, if you were devout, you knew that you'd be breaking the second commandment, which we went over a few weeks ago, breaking the second commandment because there is an image bearing on this coin. And not only did it have the image of Tiberius Caesar, it had the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, and this was written on the coin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Not only is there an image, there is an inscription of deity on this coin, attributing deity to Caesar. Not only that, if you flip the coin around on the other side, there will be another inscription, and that inscription would say Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus is what we understand to be high priest. Pontifex priest, Maximus high, high priest. There's an image. It says son of the divine Augustus. On the back, it goes high priest. Everything about this coin is repugnant, repulsive, and terrible to the Jews. He goes, bring me this coin. And then Jesus asks this very simple question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they re respond, Caesar's. And this is how he responds. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's all he says. You wanted a reductionist answer? Boom, he gives it, and when they heard it, 
They marveled. That means they were in awe. They were dumbfounded. Their jaws dropped. They left him, and they went away. So now you think about it. Who does he side with here? Does he side with the zealots, or does he side with the Romans? Because these were basically the only two choices given to Jesus, right? Well, he doesn't side with the zealots, that's for sure. But does he side with the Romans? Well, it doesn't really look like it either. And then you start to realize this, and the disciples realize this. Paul realizes this. Peter writes about it in his first letter, in 1 Peter. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 13. But there is an area of dominion or control that all leaders have. Caesar has a dominion. Caesar has an area of control. Caesar mints the coins. His kingdom uses the coins. Jesus brings in God, though, in this answer. God has dominion. What's God's? This is what puts them in a state of awe. There, there's no response. They have to go away. They wanted to pigeonhole Jesus into one of the two sides, but his wisdom and authority leaves them dumbfounded. He goes, okay, Caesar has this dominion, but God has a dominion. What's God's dominion? Nothing. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. The Herodians and the Pharisees have failed. Now it's the Sadducees' turn. If the Herodians were completely secular and the Pharisees were religious, the Sadducees—I'm sorry—the Pharisees were religious. The Sadducees were kind of both, but also not both. Here's what I mean: the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they believed and only believed in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books in the Old Testament, the books that Moses wrote, right? They are, that's the only thing that the Sadducees believed in. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection because of prophets like Isaiah and Daniel. If you look at Isaiah 26, 19 or Daniel 12, 2, it talks about resurrection. However, the Sadducees did not believe in those other prophets. They only believed in Moses. So they said there is no resurrection. The religious leaders of the time knew their Bible, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They knew their Bible, and they could go into a theological debate at a drop of a hat. Boom, they're ready to go. I wonder if anyone here is ready to go if someone asks you a theological question. But they were ready, and the Sadducees are no different. They knew their Pentateuch, and they were ready to go at it. Teacher, that's how they start. Almost in a manner that says, this is like the ring. Bang, now now. Here's the challenge. The fight's begun. Their understanding of this question comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 talks about how if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must marry the brother, not outside the family, because the, the first son that the widow would bear from the brother would carry on the dead brother's name. 
This is all born out of Israel's tradition and its heritage and how the lineage was so important in Israel. We know it because we literally have lineages that start the book of Matthew. There was the lineage. It's very important. And so this is how it's due. And if you didn't do it, let's say, ah, you know, let, let's say if you have an older brother and uh, he dies but doesn't leave a son, and then you have to marry the, the wife and then bear a child, but then that child doesn't bear your line, it bears, goes down the brother's line. And let's say you don't want to do that. There's actually punishment for that. The elders will summon this guy who does not want to marry her and say, you have to marry her. Like a whole like ceremony takes place. And if he continues to go, I don't want to marry her, then his brother's widow has to take one of his sandals and slap him in the face with the sandal in front of the presence of the elders, and then his name is changed. This is kind of funny, but this is serious stuff, I guess, because his name is changed to the family of the unsandaled. That is, that, that's amazing. So you don't perform this duty, then your name is changed to the family of the unsandaled. There are duties that the family must perform. This is a very communal society. They understood it. They understood that what you did affected everyone around you, which is kind of like the antithesis of what we're trying to do here. This is just me. It's you know, my body. This is my area. Don't come into this. Like, let me. So that's not what they believed. It was a very communal society. So they understood that whatever you do affects everyone around you. So they needed to know, how can we still live in, in an ordered society? This wasn't some obscure passage. This is right in Deuteronomy, one of the first five books of the Pentateuch. Right? They weren't arguing the law of it, however. They were making fun of the resurrection. Okay? They took the law, and they were making fun of the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and the people would start to press them. Oh, you believe in the resurrection? Okay, so since you're so smart, it, when you rise again, when you, when you become resurrected, what are you going to be wearing? What are you going to be wearing? What are you going to look like? Where will you live? These are all questions eventually because they continue to press the Pharisees. The Pharisees started to come up with the answers. Say, oh, you're going to be wearing this. Where you live, there, there will be like tunnels dug in, in the, underneath the earth and everybody, all the spirits will kind of roll down because in the bottom or the center is going to be Jerusalem. They literally would say these things because they needed an answer for everything. What the Sadducees were doing was they were ridiculing Jesus with this question. They took the law that they knew so intimately and they brought in the seven brothers case because this is a case beyond the ridiculous. They take this hypothetical example to ridicule Jesus as, as well as anyone who believed in the resurrection. How do we know that Jesus would side with the resurrection? Well, Lazarus, Lazarus, the weekend right before, just a few days before, there's this guy who claims to be resurrected by Jesus and he's following him around. So, Sadducees is like, game on. Time to poke fun. Intellectual snobbery at its finest. I remember when, it was, when I was a kid, it was seen as ignorance to believe in God in school. And if people claimed they were atheists, it was just because they were in a higher plane of intelligence, right? Oh, you believe in God? What does he look like, Eugene? Why does your God have a white beard? And why is he angry all the time? 
And you are forced to answer on their terms. Oh, wait, wait, he doesn't have a long way. Oh, he's not angry all the time. Well, well sometimes he is, oh, but, oh. And then, that's how they would get you. Why does he have a long white beard, Eugene? So the whole notion of the resurrection was so ridiculous to the Sadducees, they make fun of him. What about this woman? They would give this case. Who gets to be married to her? And if you think about it, seven brothers, it's kind of disgusting. Oh, you don't think incest is disgusting, you resurrection-believing people? You backwater ignoramus? Are you going to quote another prophet? Well, we, meaning the Sadducees, would think, well, we believe in the prophet. We believe in Moses. The whole notion of the resurrection was ridiculous to the Sadducees, and so this is the test they give Jesus. This is how Jesus answers them, though. You are wrong. It's one word, planao. It just means wrong. That's what it means. You are wrong. But the actual word planao means meander. It's like you don't even know where you're going. You're just wandering. That's the word planao, which means wrong. Here it's translated, you are wrong, because maybe if we translated, Jesus answered them wrong, it might have sounded uh, weird. Um, But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know where you're going because you don't even know the scriptures that you claim to know so well or the power of God. The scriptures do teach the resurrection, and by not believing it, you underestimate the power of God. For in the resurrection, he continues, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You live, meaning when he was pointing out to the Sadducees, the Sadducees lived whatever way they wanted because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that this life is it, that's it. That's why you could live whatever way you want. That's why they did abuse the people in the way they abused them. Because this was it. This is all the life you get. So if you get this power to abuse, that's because you're blessed, right? You live whatever way you want because you think this life is all there is. But by living this way, you deny the power of God. If you live whatever way you want to live, you deny the power of God and you deny the word of God. And he continues on this teaching. Now, this is, this is incredible. Like, everything that Jesus says here is just absolutely insane. There is no marriage in the sense that there is no exclusive partnerships in heaven. The marriage that we now know is between Christ and his bride. That is the church. And we will be like the angels. There is so much to unpack with this one, especially in light of 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, their woman should have a symbol over their head because of the angels. And so you're like, what does that even mean? But people would have known, in the very least, 
that angels are holy creatures, okay? Angels are holy creatures. They are creatures that aren't just holy, but they are holy creatures in the very presence of God. Angels got to dwell with God, yes? So they are holy creatures in the presence of God. So the absurdity that the resurrection, that in the resurrection there would be any hint of unholiness in the presence of God is your stupidity. And Jesus flips it right back on them. This is incredible. And then for the finisher, Jesus doesn't quote from Daniel or Isaiah or not even Job. In Job 19, 25 to 27, talks about the resurrection there too. But he quotes from the very book that they say they believe, the Pentateuch. He quotes from Exodus 3, 6. He is not the God, but the, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. He quotes that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. This was a group that based their whole life banking on their understanding of the scriptures in their way. And Jesus, in one fell swoop, demolishes their whole worldview. That's insane. In Luke, some of the scribes are recorded saying, well said, teacher, because they were so excited. They're listening to Jesus, and Jesus is like cutting down the Herodians, the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees. The Sadducees were savage. They made fun of you. They cut him down. And one of those crowds would go, well said, teacher. And then people are like, shh, he's the enemy, guys. Don't forget. Like, I get you don't like the Sadducees, but he's still our enemy. What are you doing, you idiot? And so in, in Luke, it's one of those crowds goes, well said. Anyway, but it continues. It doesn't end there. When the Pharisees heard in verse 34, he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Okay, this is now serious stuff. The Pharisees may have thought, okay, well, we sent them to the Herodians. They failed. Bunch of useless people. The Sadducees failed. We hate them. We love seeing them fail, but it's still terrible because we still don't like Jesus. And they're thinking, what do we do now? What do we do now? And in verse 35, says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Lawyer is translated from nomikos. And nomikos means an expert in the law. The law, of course, isn't like, you know, civil law. It's uh, the scriptures. So an expert in the law is what's translated lawyer, nomikos. So this lawyer, and this is funny because Pharisees were a group of experts already. So in the group of experts, there's an expert. So an expert of experts. So the 1% of the 1%, this person comes and comes to test Jesus. The word test is perazo, which we went over. It's the same thing that Satan did to Jesus to test him. This is not a good thing. This is a testing in order to stumble. So the lawyer's intent wasn't good. It was to stumble Jesus. And so to be an expert would be a very high superlative. And the Pharisees in general were experts already, so we'll see like there are, there are experts to the degree where they would take the minutia, the details, everything. They would be so meticulous in following the whole 613 letters of the law. So they would even like, and we'll see next week when Pastor Paul preaches on chapter 23, they would tie their mint, dill, and cumin. They would take their spices and tie that. That's how meticulous they were in following the letter of the law. But this, Nomokos, is an expert among these ex experts. 
and he asks Jesus an open question, an open question. And some speculate it was because this question was being hotly debated in their circles at the time. There was a rabbi named Akiba who gave what we now know as a negative golden rule. He would say, don't treat your neighbors how you don't want to be treated. And some would say, don't treat your neighbors how you don't want to be treated. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It's, it's like, how did, so there were, the Gentiles would come and test and make fun of the Jews all the time because they would have so many laws. So they would make Akiba stand on one leg like this. And he said, okay, while you're standing on one leg, can you recite the whole law? And this is what he would say. Don't treat your neighbors how you don't want to be treated. And some people heard this like, that's amazing. It's brilliant. This is like 120 AD. This is brilliant. So <clears throat> they would start saying, this is the whole law, and everything else is just commentary. That's what they would start saying. And of course, we see in Matthew 7, Jesus actually gives us the golden rule. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is flipping Akiba's negative golden rule on his head, by the way. And he goes even further because the positive of that is impossible to do. How do you do to others what you would have them do to you? Is that how you treat anybody? If you're married, do you treat your spouse that way? Do you treat your spouse the way you want to be treated? That's crazy. It's impossible. Jesus gives us that in Matthew 7. So this is a question that was being hotly debated. Um, so by asking a question that they themselves couldn't clearly answer, what are they doing? It's pretty genius, if you think about it. Something that's hotly debated, you would pull Jesus into your level, and you would continue on this theological debate, and then you already debated it so much, you're an expert in this debate. So you could actually stumble him and say, ah, you don't even know what you're doing, or... You can even have him stumble outright by not answering well and then just make him look stupid. Because sometimes the thing we know most about is the thing that we do not know about. Sometimes the thing we know most about is the thing that we do not know anything about. But Jesus gives them an answer. Jesus gives them an answer first from Deuteronomy 6.5 and then from Leviticus 19.18. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. First, this would have answered, Give to Caesars what is Caesars, right? Give to God's, God what is God's. How? Whose image is on a denarius? Where is Caesar's image? It's on a denarius, okay? Where is God's image? Where is God's image? If you knew Genesis chapter 1, you know the answer to this. We are made in the image of God. What do we owe God then? We owe God everything. Everything we are is God's. So the question is not what do we owe God? The answer is everything. 
But how do we give to God what is God's then? These two commandments. He puts loving God and loving your neighbor together. These two commandments stand together. There is a first and a second, as there should be, because they belong together, because you cannot have the first without the second. I'll tell you what I mean by that. These two belong together, and you cannot have the first without the second. Meaning in John, 1 John 4.20, um, in his letter, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. These two commandments, to love your God, to love your neighbor, are together. And how are you supposed to love God? Well, number one, with all your heart. When we go put your heart into it, that means you need to put your strength and your physical body into it. With all your soul, in Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. The soul was classically used for the inner being, meaning emotions, but Everything in the inner being was the soul. So with all your heart, meaning all your physical and strength body, and with all your soul, the inner being, but he also goes with all your mind. Yes, we are also commanded to love God with our intellect. We must love God with all of our capacities. That's the commandment. Love here, the word is what we might be familiar with. It's agapao. Agapao, simply put, is the love of commitment, not phileo. Phileo is a love of attraction, or it's not any other kind of love. It's agapao, sacrifice, obedience, purpose of will. They are all in agapao. It's a wholehearted love. This is how we must love God. And then he says that on these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. Remember that the Pharisees were debating on how they could obey, obey and adhere to the law. They were all debating. And Jesus says that all the laws hang on these two, meaning that without observing these two laws, it is impossible to adhere to any other law. In Mark, the lawyer answers back saying to Jesus, that's right, that's right. It's not about sacrifices. And we actually literally sang that, which is funny. It's not about sacrifices or burnt offerings. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. From this hangs or hinges everything else that flows. So if you don't love God, if you don't love your neighbor, anything that you do isn't right. You're not following the law. But this is, this is interesting. In Mark, uh, Jesus responds when the lawyer goes, you have answered right. That's right. And he goes, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. That's a very high compliment to receive from Jesus, right? Jesus goes to this lawyer, the expert of experts who says this. He goes, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And you might have thought, that's a nice compliment to hear from Jesus. But that's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's the same saying we have, close but no cigar. It means you were close to win the prize, but you didn't win the prize. It, you just still didn't get the cigar. So it's good, but not good enough. Why? Because when he goes, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven, or you are, not, you are near the kingdom of heaven, uh, near isn't good enough. My friends, 
you have to listen to this. Near is not good enough. Just because you are near the kingdom of God is not good enough. You must enter. What, in what sense was he near, though? He understood that this was an internal heart issue. It's not an external, sacrificial, ceremonial issue, but it's an internal heart issue. It's not an outward ceremonial issue, but that's not good enough. You must enter. To be near isn't good enough, but you must enter. Just like he said, you must enter, like the camel entering through the eye of a needle. So how do you enter? That's the bigger question. Not if you're close to the answer. How do you enter? So this time, Jesus presses them. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asks them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they respond, the son of David. They knew this because they knew their Bible. They knew in 2 Samuel 7, 13, 14, Isaiah 11, Verses 1 and verse 10, the stump of Jesse, right? Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it's all talking about the son of David being the Messiah, the Christ. And they go, the son of David. They knew the answer, and this is what he asks them now. How then, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 starts with the words, a psalm of David. Because David wrote it. It's like literally in the scroll. We might not have it in our verses, but the scroll literally says, A Psalm of David. And this is what David writes in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus comes down to the real pressing issue. Maybe you were following along, maybe it was a lot, but you were like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Taxes, uh, resurrection, these are all amazing answers that Jesus is giving. He's blowing people away. People are loving it. They were awe-inspired, they were astounded, they marveled. It's not about taxes, though. That's not the real pressing issue. It's not about the resurrection. That's not the real pressing issue. The real question they are asking, and this is what Jesus is getting to, the real reason why they hate him so much question is, who is the Messiah? Oh, these lawyers and experts in the law, they think they know. They know the word. But this is not the complete view. By quoting Psalm 110, Jesus is asking, how can David call his son Lord? He goes, you didn't dig deep enough. You boast about knowing the word. You boast about knowing the Messiah. But you don't know. This is a psalm of David, so he's not writing about himself. Psalm 110 says, a psalm of David. He's not writing about himself in the third person. And there was this language. If you keep on reading Psalm 110, there's this language of him being a priest. Not only in the priest in the order of Melchizedek, but a priest forever. So how can this guy be a priest and a king and Lord forever? How can you, for all eternity, be a king and a priest. Jesus is literally spelling it out for them. How do you enter? Because being near isn't good enough. How do you enter? By following Jesus. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as it says in John. And you enter through Christ and him alone. He literally blew them away, left them speechless, answered all their most deepest and confusing questions, all the theological debates. He goes, boom, he answers them in one sentence. But that's not the real pressing issue. The real pressing issue is who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah? And if you understand who Jesus is, you will understand what is required of you. What is required of you is repentance. What is that? It's admission that what you have been doing all this time wasn't actually following God. You have not been following God. You never loved him or his people. You actually hated God. You are a liar. You cannot say that you love God and hate your brother and do these things to other people. You hate God. You need to repent. And even though Jesus answered so comprehensively, in utter perfection, do they repent? No. And we know that just in a few days' time, they will get the people to turn to kill Jesus. They literally lie. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah. Did Jesus oppose taxes? No, he goes, pay your taxes. But they lie. Just two, three days later, in John chapter 19, verse 12, when Pilate tried to set Jesus free, the Jewish leaders are the ones that kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. And anyone who opposes Caesar needs to die. Anyone who claims to be king is opposing Caesar, so you need to die too. They were pressing Pilate. There is something that we need to know here. When the word of God is given, when the word of God is rightly preached, there is a separation that takes place. When the word of God is rightly preached, there is a separation that takes place. One is a group that turns to God, rejoices that what they received is unmerited grace. I didn't deserve it, but I got it. And it's through Christ that I've been given this grace. When the word is rightly preached, you feel that in your soul. And now, because of this grace, I can turn to God in love so that I can love him, agapao, I can love him with all of my heart, soul, and mind. That's one group. There's another group. The other group are the ones that continue to rebel and turn away from God. It's not that serious. You've you got to stop talking about judgment uh, too much. I want the God of love. I, I don't believe in your God. They continue to rebel and turn away from God. They hate everything about God. And they hate God through everything. Those are the only two. They hate everything about God. And they hate God through everything. There was this uh, mini controversy of someone in Australia, I think he was some kind of rugby player, 
and they pressed him on these questions. Is like homosexuality a sin or a bunch of these other things? And he goes, yeah, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. It's in the Bible. And people just raged at him. They kicked him off. They canceled all his uh, sponsorships. And this one very famous uh, Australian church pastor would go, he shouldn't have said that. He shouldn't have said that. Because, and he starts quoting the Bible. He quoted John 3, 17. Because we all know, for God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then he goes, oh, but there's also verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's what this rugby player needs to understand. And I was listening to that, and my mind was blown. I was like, quote John 3.18. Why did you stop at 17? Quote John 3.18. So here, I just want to quote this for you. If you understand everything that I said about the sermon and what I'm saying, just listen to the word of God. Just listen to John 3, 16 and on. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands already condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. There are two, people who love the light and people who love the darkness. Not my words, it's Jesus Christ. To understand then Clearly, what must be done isn't how close are you to Jesus? How much have you been coming to church? How much have you tithed your cumin, your mint, and your dill? It's have you entered? That's the biggest question. Have you entered? And to enter, you need to know who is the Messiah. The Messiah is Lord. And when the Lord speaks... It's the word of God. And when the word of God is given, it's light shining on your life. Do you love the light or do you hate the light? That's what's separating. That's the word of God. It's like a double-edged sword. It says it separates. It cuts. And so this is what Jesus is saying. And I started off this message by saying this, and I want to end it too. This pronunciation of judgment isn't so that you solely become upset, but isn't the pronunciation of judgment a mercy given to us? If there is a part of you that hates the light, you don't want the light to shine in your life for this because there definitely is a sin. The Bible clearly says it's a sin and you should not leave, live this way because it is defaming and hating God, hating your creator. You are not loving him with all of your mind, soul, heart. You are not doing these things then shouldn't you be the one saying, I cannot. I need to enter. And the only way I can do that is not by own merit. I can't do it. 
It's like a camel going in through the eye of a needle. Impossible. It must only be through Jesus Christ. And this is what the Christians will fall on their faces and say, God, I cannot do this without you. It's solely and only by your grace that I can even, even come to you. And this is what the Christian says and believes. And this is what we celebrate here. Every song that we sing, every confession that we make, every prayer that is heard, every word that is preached is about our gratefulness and thanksgiving to God who saved us when we didn't need saving. That's why this part right here is incredible. It's recognizing who Jesus is and giving him the worship that he deserves. He is Lord over our lives. He is God the creator, and he deserves every single bit of glory. And we are here to worship him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you are the one that said in your own words, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Oh God, we know that our deeds are evil and that we cannot change our ways, but this is why we need you. We need you to turn our hearts our hearts must be repentant, and we know that we cannot do this on our own, but we need to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. This is what the Sadducees didn't believe. They didn't believe in the power of God, and they didn't believe in the Scriptures. And so, Lord, help us by changing our hearts so that we could give you due glory and we could give you worship as you are our Creator and our God. Let's take this time to pray. And when we pray, let us repent of the ways that we have been so wrong in, the areas of our lives and our heart that we have not been repentant or humble or loving in, and that when the light is shown on it, you are convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also by the power of the Holy Spirit, you ask him to change you, to renew you, to give you new life. So let's pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would do that in your life now.